Tonight I would like to talk about freeing heart and mind of the hindrances. Over and over, the teaching of liberation insists our true innate being is Buddha nature. The American Dzogchen Lama Surya Das says, we are all Buddhas, but we are sleeping. Sleeping Buddhas awaken. What is it that keeps us from recognizing our true nature, which we are? What keeps us from awakening to it? Why is it that we can hardly believe that we really are Buddhas? On the deepest level, it is ignorance, not understanding reality as it is, not understanding who we are. That's what keeps us in bondage. On a more obvious level, it's the manifestation of ignorance known as the five hindrances. There are actually more than five, but they're sort of summarized. Maybe there are 5,000, I don't know, but five hindrances. It's these hindrances in our hearts and minds which quite often, actually quite continually, in many ways, create trouble for us. And that's what I would like to talk about tonight. Almost everyone who has spent even a little time in meditation is familiar with them. They are sense desire, ill will or aversion, various forms of aversion, hatred, sloth and torpor or tiredness, restlessness and worry, and skeptical doubt. These are the properties that impede and torment heart and mind and cloud or blur a clear vision, a clear seeing and understanding. Whenever even one of these hindrances is active in our mind, we're unable to develop steadiness or concentration or to see and recognize reality, recognize things as they are, recognize the true nature of things. This, of course, gets even more impossible when the hindrances get to us in a well-known and quite popular multi-pack. Like, we're restless and sleepy at the same time, and therefore we're irritated, and that makes us full of doubt all at once. I don't know if anyone has had that experience. It's a time when we try to remember what on earth moved us to come to this retreat, and we just cannot remember any good reason for being here. Buddha gave an illustration which gives us a good idea on how these different hindrances work. 
He compares the heart or mind with water in different conditions. Sense desire is like water that has various colors mixed to it, various attractive colors. Ill will, aversion, hatred is like boiling water. Sloth and torpor, tiredness is compared to stagnating moss-covered water. Restlessness and worry is similar to water that is agitated and moved by the wind. And skeptical doubt is like murky, muddy water. With that kind of water, we won't be able to contemplate the reflection of the sky and the clouds on the surface. And it will be impossible to look through the water and see all the way to the ground. Similarly, our hearts and minds, when tormented by the hindrances, will be unable to experience any clarity, insight, or serenity. On the other hand, I think it is fascinating and also inspiring to see that the water itself never really has got contaminated by the varied colors, by the boiling, by the moss, by the agitation or the murkiness. And in its actual true nature always remains clear water. Because as soon as it cools down, as the colors and the mud settle, the wind and waves subside, the water again is as pure and as clear as ever. In that exact same way, it is with our mind. The archetype of the struggle of the human mind with these often threatening forces is the battle against Mara, Mara is the personification of these negative forces. It's the battle which the future Buddha fought before his final awakening in Bodhgaya under the Bodhi tree. Joseph Campbell, in his book Hero with a Thousand Faces, describes this struggle in a poetic, mythical imagery depicting the gigantic forces that are at play here. He wrote, The Bodhisattva, the future Buddha, placed himself with the firm resolve beneath the Bodhi tree on the immovable spot and straightway was approached by Mara, the god of evil and death. The dangerous god appeared mounted on an elephant and carrying weapons in his thousand hands. He was surrounded by his army, which extended twelve leagues before him, twelve to the right, twelve to the left, and in the rear as far as to the confines of the world, and he was nine leagues high. The protecting deities of the universe took flight 
but the future Buddha remained unmoved. Whirlwind, rocks, thunder and flame, smoking weapons with keen edges, burning coals, hot ashes, boiling mud, blistering sands and fourfold darkness the antagonist hurled against the Savior. But the missiles were all transformed into celestial flowers and ointments by the power of Gautama's ten perfections. Mara deployed desire and lust, surrounded by voluptuous attendants, but the mind of the great being was not distracted. The god finally challenged his right to be sitting on the immovable spot, flung his razor-sharp discus angrily and bit the towering host of the army to let fly at him with mountain cracks. But the future Buddha only moved his hand to touch the ground with his fingertips and thus bid the goddess Earth bear witness to his right to be sitting where he was. She did so with a hundred, a thousand, a hundred thousand roars so that the elephant of the antagonist fell upon its knees in obeisance to the future Buddha. The army was immediately dispersed and the gods of all the worlds gathered garlands. Now, our struggle with Mara, with the hindrances, temptations of our heart and mind, is usually not as dramatical, but at times not less difficult. It can be very difficult, as many of us know. Also given the fact that perhaps we aren't yet such realized bodhisattvas as was Gautama, the Prince Siddhartha, that time under the Bodhi tree. Now I'd like to look at each one of these hindering properties or qualities of the heart and mind. Sense desire. It's the restless sense of needing something which we don't have. We look towards the outside of ourselves to find satisfaction. And satisfaction really means a state of mind in which this restless, agitated feeling of desire is stilled, is fulfilled again, and has ceased. Where we're content again with what actually is. We hope to get this state of mind through or from the right person, from property, new acquisitions, from food, from sex, from TV programs, from movies, from music, maybe from certain activities, tasks or missions or roles. In short, from one of the only six possible experiences of seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, bodily sensations, or feeling and thinking. Or from a multi-pack of them. This state of desire really is a feeling of inner poverty. What we are and what we have right now is not enough. 
Yet what we so very much wish for is exactly that feeling of having enough, of being content, of being or feeling fulfilled. Yet, unfortunately, none of these people, these things, these experiences have the power to fulfill us in such a way. Because all these beings and situations and things and experiences are subject to change, subject to impermanence, and are ultimately outside of our control. So, the search remains endless and over and over we are unfulfilled. Maybe like Sisyphus, endlessly and unsuccessfully trying or successful for a moment and then again finding that it isn't enough and again and it's not enough and again. As George Bernard Shaw said, there are two kinds of disappointments in life not to get what one wishes and to get it. It's the feeling of desire, of craving, of attachment that is highly unpleasant. In uh, my language we have these ways of saying this and uh, I imagine it exists in English too, but I don't know how you say it. We would say, he's burning with desire. Or we say, she devours herself with longing. Things like that, which even in common language sort of expresses how unpleasant actually these states of mind and of the heart are. Certainly, they're not very cozy or restful states. Now, before I want to look at ways of dealing with these hindrances, I'd like to present first the other four. So the second one is ill will, or aversion, hatred. And it's simply the reversed inner movement of this previous one. The undesired the mind which tries to get rid of the undesired, the undesirable person, the unwanted situation, the unpleasant things, the troublesome sounds or noises or words, the unpleasant feelings. In short, the unwanted sights, sounds, smells, tastes, sensations, feelings or thoughts. Trying to change them trying to suppress them, to deny them, or to destroy them if necessary, to get them out of our world in any way possible. We do this through hatred, ill will, irritation, anger, boredom, judgment, condemnation. And this too is a, quite a hopeless undertaking because all things in existence follow their own laws and mostly lie outside of our control. Acting out of aversion and hatred towards others usually also produces with them the opposite effect from the one that we were looking for. It's very rare that you 
say something to a person with anger, with hatred, with aversion, and then the person will say, oh, right, you're really right, I just understand now. It's very rare. We get more of the same back. So it's obviously not helpful. In addition, this state of mind and heart, again, is very painful, even unbearable. Again, we have these words that we use in German. We say, she's boiling with anger. We say, she got blue from hatred. I almost died from boredom. Again, it's suggesting that they're not really states of mind we would like to have or like to cultivate. So it's desire, ill will, aversion. Number three is sloth and torpor, or perhaps tiredness. It's the well-known feeling of sleepiness. We wish to sink or fall over. We wish to lie down, fall asleep. We're without energy, without enthusiasm. Drowsy, heavy, tired, exhausted, or lazy, indolent, and uninspired. And it's very obvious that in this state we are unable to develop steadiness or concentration, nor are we able to see things, to experience insight. Desire, aversion, tiredness. Number four is called restlessness and worry. It's the agitation in the heart and mind, which often very directly also manifests in the body. It's being worried, excited, anxious, brooding, feeling sorry. Just as a monkey jumps from tree to tree, the mind jumps from object to object, scattered from thought to thought. Feelings are confused. Clarity and steadiness are far away. Maybe we're sitting and we've been peeking at our watch at least five times. We think, God, it's still 25 minutes. Or we're worried with our eyes closed, but we're really worried that the person up front perhaps forgot to ring the bell. It must be an hour and a half by now. It's a state of mind that seems utterly unbearable. A state of mind that's certainly not very wholesome or helpful. So again, desire, aversion, tiredness, restlessness. Number five is skeptical doubt. Doubt can appear to be rather harmless, yet all of a sudden, in no time, it can put us out of combat. It can paralyze us, can paralyze our practice. This kind of doubt is defined as a mental factor which, in and of itself, vacillates back and forth between two possibilities, or sometimes several possibilities. We're startled, bewildered, unable to make decisions, pulled and pushed by doubt, skepticism, and indecision. 
we have doubts about ourselves, we doubt our capabilities to do and to complete what we set out to do. Maybe we're quite new, everybody's really sitting quietly, we open our eye, one eye, we look around, everybody's very still. We're sure everybody here has done this for 25 years. Only me, I'm all new, I can't do this. And then the next person who looks so still sort of looks around and sees everybody else sitting still, thinking the same. I can't do it. So difficult, impossible for me. Or we have doubts about the teachings. This weird practice of meditation, this dumb, unnatural sitting, it can't possibly be any good. I should have gone to this workshop for Sufi dancing, actually. Or even better, the Tantra course on Tenerife, right? We have doubts about the guy sitting up front. They don't wear no spiritual costumes. I mean, these shawls won't do, really. They have no exotic titles, no swamis, no Rinpoches, no ma, no mother, Feldman. <laughs> the chairman can't even sit in lotus on the floor. <laughs> <laughs> they can't be for real. Who knows? Maybe it's true. <laughs> Doubt when unrecognized has the power to block our progress, even has the power to stop our practice and to make us leave here. We've seen people pack and leave at our retreat house, one of the retreat houses we rent up in the mountains. You know, someone going back in the room while everybody's sitting, packing their big backpack, and then walking down. It's an hour and a half down to the railway station. And then down there realizing, actually it was just out. Maybe, maybe it's actually a good thing. Turning around, back up, it's two and a half hours. <laughs> you know, waiting in the woods for the next sitting, sneaking in, going to the room, unpacking, and then, you know, go for the next walking meditation. Doubt can do that, and sometimes people don't recognize it, even at the railway station. Doubt was Mara's last temptation, his last attempt to shake the future Buddha's determination. When he contested the Buddha's, the Bodhisattva's right to sit on that spot under the tree. So we can see, not only do these hindrances prevent collectedness, steadiness, and insight, not only do they deceive, torment, and paralyze the heart and mind, but they're also very unpleasant. And in addition, they create predominantly karmically unwholesome states. And that way they reinforce our unwholesome negative tendencies and cause painful experiences in the future. Yet, and I think that's important to be clear about, 
these hindrances are not bad or evil or sinful. Rather, they're simply highly disadvantageous qualities for ourselves and for others. So the question for us is, how do we skillfully relate to them? How do we deal with these hindrances? And the question is not, how can we get rid of them immediately? How can we skillfully relate to them? The first point prerequisite for a skillful way of relating to them, of course, is being mindful, aware, recognizing them. We clearly recognize them for what they are. You see, oh, right, now there's doubt in the mind, or now irritation is rising. Oh, now irritation is strong. When we feel it, it's very strong, maybe anger. Oh, now irritation is fading. Oh, now no more irritation is present. To see, to feel, to notice what is. Just as it is said in the Mahasatipatthana Sutta, the Buddha's great discourse on awareness or mindfulness, how does a monk or a meditator abide contemplating mind objects as mind objects, such as the five hindrances? And the Buddha very often spoke to the monk, so I leave the he in this case. He goes on. Here, if sense desire is present in him, he knows sense desire is present in me. When no sense desire is present, he knows no sense desire is present. He knows when ill will, aversion is present or absent. When sloth and torpor is present. When restlessness and worry or when doubt is present. Thus he contemplates this phenomena arising. Thus he contemplates this phenomena passing away. Thus he is mindful and aware just to the extent necessary for insight. What I think is important for us here is not only to hear what has been said, but also to realize what is not being said here. For example, it doesn't say, thus he fights against sense-desire. Thus, he desperately struggles with drowsiness. With strong willpower, he suppresses worry and restlessness. Pitilessly, he judges and condemns aversion in himself. It doesn't say that. Can you hear that? It says one knows what is present, one knows what is arising, and one knows and sees what is passing and then one knows what has gone. That's a very different story. Also, of course, it doesn't say he gets lost in ill will, and then he tries to get rid of ill will. What we practice here is certainly not easy, but it is incredibly simple if we understand 
what it's all about. See how it is now. See and feel clearly how it is now. Period. For this we need awareness, mindfulness, presence. Again, that's really the key. And we need gentle, non-judgmental, equanimous mindfulness as far as possible. Mindfulness to the extent necessary for insight to arise, as it says. Mindfulness, awareness which simply feels, senses and sees what is. Without its identification, means without getting lost in the thoughts and stories and dramas that come with these feelings, with desire or aversion, without attachment, without judgment and condemnation. And in case we do hold on with attachment, which we do sometimes, in case we do judge and condemn, which we do sometimes, then that's what the mindfulness sees and is aware of. Now, now there's attachment. Now it's gone. Now there's judging. Oh, thank you. Oh, now it's gone. It's that simple. This, of course, will be difficult each and every time we get lost in the content, in the drama of these emotions and hindrances. Then we experience them as very dense, as solid, even as permanent, with, there's a sense that this will always be the way it is, even though we know better. That's how it feels. We perceive those states as something which I am, which I have. This kind of relationship changes immediately as soon as we are mindful, aware and in touch with the constantly changing, impermanent nature of this hindering, obstructing feelings and mind states. As soon as we look and sense with awareness, we recognize these feelings and emotions, so-called hindrances, they come and go all by themselves, in a way like clouds, like dark clouds in the sky. They appear, but are ingraspable, non-graspable, like the reflection of the moon on the water. Like Tilopa sang for Naropa in his song of Mahamudra, just as the clouds floating through the sky have no roots, no home, so do the distinctive thoughts and feelings floating through the mind. They appear according to their causes and conditions. They move, they change, they disappear when it's their time. We remain as mindful and aware, as present as we can, as we can, as unshaken as we can. There's nothing we need to do for or against them. See them. Easy come, easy go. And we see clearly that these so-called hindrances, 
These mind states do not belong to us and not I or me. And when we feel into it even deeper, sometimes in moments when the mind is more silent, we see that there really isn't even anyone who could be the owner, who has anger, who has restlessness. And in that, even with those difficult mind states, we can recognize some inner freedom, uh, openness, a space that is always present, even though maybe the fog in the cloud seems to obscure that open space. Yet, as we all know, sometimes it's not that easy. We're not that mindful. We do identify with those hindrances. And we do get lost in them. At that time, there are certain remedies which can help us to get clear. When sense desire overwhelms us, a few things that can be helpful one can be helpful if sometimes we reflect on the fact that our body will get old. Will get old. Body decays and dies. As Ashley Brilliant says, inside every older person is a younger person wondering what happened. Or as Santoka Taneda says in his poetical, dry way. A beautiful spring has arrived next to the cemetery. To remember, things will pass either way a lot faster than we would like sometimes, but just fast enough when the situation is difficult or the mind state is one that we would rather not have. We remember, this is going to pass also, the thing which we like, which we want, is going to pass. The satisfaction that we might get from it also is going to pass. To reflect on the fact that what we desire, what we wish to possess, is impermanent, won't last. Another thing that I find really helpful, if we actually do it, is to observe and feel over and over, not just once, but over and over, how it is when desire is present. And then also to feel, quite consciously, notice how it is when desire is absent, when it's not here. When we do that, then we compare those two states. Very quickly, we come to recognize that what we really wish for, what we really desire, is the state of mind in which desire is absent. It's almost a little paradoxical. What we really want is that state of desirelessness, of contentment, of relief, of ease and peace. It's really interesting. We think we want the thing, the object, the person, the experience. But what we really want, what we really want is we get that hit and then for a moment, things are just fine. And it's such a relief, and that's what we're looking for. And then, of course, the next thing pops up in the mind. And again, we're out there wanting something which we don't have. 
becoming more and more aware of that, instead of going through the whole trip necessary in order to fulfill our desire, to appease our desire, at least sometimes, we can simply let go. Remember that what we're looking for is that state of being free of the desire. So we let go, and we find, oh, right, I'm already here. Sometimes desire doesn't, just by letting go, the thing we're looking for, doesn't just go away. But knowing, being aware of its impermanent nature, we can just wait a moment and it'll fade all by itself. It only hangs in there when we keep on repeatingly thinking of what it is that we want. To look at the working and also the feeling of the state of desire and its absence. It takes practice to actually look, not to wait. You see, especially with these hindrances, we, can, we have a lot of opportunities to, to look into them. We don't have to wait nine days until they come. So it's a very rich field of learning and practice. It also takes a lot of willingness to actually look, to actually feel, to actually let go. Oscar Wilde admitted, I can resist everything except for temptation. It is difficult. When aversion and hatred overcome us, first of all, it's extremely helpful and important not to judge and condemn ourselves for having this mind state. Loving kindness, metta, and I think in this case, best for oneself, can be very helpful. If, in case, we can find enough inner space to do it, sometimes anger or hatred, aversion is too strong, then it doesn't make sense to sort of pretend that we really actually love that person. And we sort of say, you know, we'll be happy. In that case, sometimes it helps to remember that we could send some kindness to ourselves. Say, oh, well, my, may I be happy, remembering that it's so much nicer to not be worked up in aversion and anger. And that sometimes helps. Or else, if we can simply be present with some awareness and a somewhat gentle, not too condemning attitude. That's already pretty good. We can feel the anger and aversion and really be with it. Just stop producing the story that we have about a certain event in the past or in the future or right now. And remember, that energy, that feeling can be here and if we don't feed it and don't fight it, it'll just pass by itself another moment we can be present, we can be with, and we'll experience changing nature of all things. Even aversion, it will come and go all by itself. We want, we can also reflect on karma. When we have difficult, unpleasant experiences in life, 
it's really nothing else than the result of our, of our own actions in the past. So it's actually a great opportunity to burn up a lot of that karma so we can rejoice. For those who can do that. There's a way of practicing in the Tibetan tradition that's quite far out. They go much further. If it's a person that brings up our aversion, they think, okay, actually this person is taking negative karma on themselves to give me an opportunity to burn up my old stuff. They're really helpful. Isn't that wonderful? Actually, they're real great bodhisattvas because, you know, they're creating that opportunity for me to practice. So it's such an opportunity. It's a little more difficult to use that way. So if you just want to be present with a not too judgmental mindfulness, seeing it come and go. When sloth and torpor, tiredness overcomes us, it's important to first make some sort of peace with it. To remember, it's not that bad. We do feel sleepy and drowsy sometimes. So we sort of fall over. It's not a big deal. If somebody else looks around, they might know that we're sleepy and tired. If that's a problem, I've seen the one person that is, was for many years famous as being the greatest master in the Tibetan Mahayana tantric tradition, falling asleep in the middle of a teaching he gave us. <laughs> and he had absolutely, utterly no problem with it. He was quite old and he had had a long day intensive day and we had been bothering him for three days for this one teaching we wanted and finally the, day be the night before he left he said okay so we went in the room and he taught us and person translated and 15 minutes into the teaching the translator turns around and he's gone you know thinking all these things why is he doing it? He's just manifesting, he's just testing us, he's showing us something, this is a teaching. And then, you know, finally giving it up. And after f five, ten minutes, he wakes up and he continues the teaching and the translator continues translating. And I say, right, he was very tired. Big deal. Not to indulge or to, you know, endlessly get caught in sleepiness if it's not necessary, but also to know, especially in the beginning of retreats, sleepiness is one of the hindrances that does come. Make peace with it. Take the five or ten percent of awareness that remain and look what sleepiness is like, if you can, you know, in between sort of falling. <laughs> oh, right, you know, it's like Maybe this cloud or something that comes over the eyes or it's like a black hole. It sucks the energy out of the body. Or Look, explore what it's like or explore that fine line between normal thought and these funny thoughts that tell us that it's actually a dream. It can be interesting. But then when we're okay with it, and we're not 
fighting it, struggling it, because we think it shouldn't be there, it's terrible to have it. There's a few things we can do about it, and I think it can be helpful to use them. You can take some deep in-breath, get some more oxygen, sometimes that helps a little bit. Sometimes opening one's eyes helps, not looking around what's happening in the hall, but just opening the eyes or looking in the light. At times you might want to stand up. When you're really sleepy and stand, please stand with open eyes. Okay? You might want to do standing meditation for 10-15 minutes, and as you know, sometimes it's suddenly like a curtain, sleepiness disappears, and you know you're fine again, you can sit down. Or stand for half an hour, do standing meditation, especially maybe when it gets later by night. In the walking, if you have several attacks of drowsiness in different sittings, sometimes you might do a very fast walking, just take a longer stretch and walk up and down very fast, so you get the energy moving. Also, have a look at the quantities you eat. It is the highlight of the day, eating. And yet, to just remember being less active, we might need a little less food. And if there is drowsiness, especially after eating, then it might be helpful to just eat a little more moderately. When all this doesn't help, and we keep on falling asleep over and over throughout the day, it might also mean we've had a difficult week, a very busy month, and we're really tired and we need some rest, so take some rest. When restlessness and worry gets us during a sitting, for example, we sometimes tend to squirm and wiggle and move around in the attempt to avoid this unpleasant intensity. What's really helpful, though, is to sit completely still and to actually let go, relax inside. It's like giving up. We often sort of fight that restlessness by tightening inside because we don't really want to feel it. And it's like doing the opposite. It's like when you would imagine sitting on an anthill and you don't want to sit down in it because it promises to become unpleasant. It's like saying, okay, like uh, Jack Cornfield suggests that uh, we'd say, I'm willing to be the first yogini who will die from restlessness. Take me. To just drop into it and find out that nobody has died from it so far. It's not that bad. It's just somewhat unpleasant. And allow it to be there. Sometimes it helps when we emphasize out-breath, letting go. Sometimes it's better to return gently but decidedly to the breath and really hold the attention. But sometimes when it's too wild, it's more useful to open up the aversion to include the whole restlessness that might be in the body. A sense of wide open awareness creates enough or a sense of enough inner space to embrace the whole commotion of restlessness 
and then we can just be with the whole show. When skeptical doubt torments us, the most important is to recognize the doubt as doubt, as I mentioned before. Otherwise, we're at, at its mercy. This doesn't mean we should be uncritical. We do want to decide for ourselves whether this meditation, whether this practice, whether this kind of spiritual path is helpful for us, suits us, or not. But usually it's more helpful to do that at the end of a retreat that we already are in and have decided to do. Maybe a few days after it's over, the week after. The definitely most unhelpful moment for this assessment is a difficult, unpleasant meditation period. It's just not the right time to check out whether this is a helpful thing for us or not. When we recognize doubt, we simply need to not believe the doubt, not buy into it, not to take any consequences, at least for that moment. And we know sometimes all that is needed is a quick change of inner climate, five or ten minutes of sudden inner stillness or clarity. And right away we want to go to a three-year three retreat. We think we've heard the Tibetans doing this. Again, we also don't need to buy into this one for the time being. So doubt, when unrecognized, can be disastrous. Doubt, when recognized and seen through, is completely harmless. No problem. All these antidotes can be very helpful, but only to a limited extent. Again, Jack Cornfield writes, the use of antidotes is like the use of plaster, while awareness and gentleness opens the wound and heals it. The most effective means against the hindrances or in being or working with hindrances, actually against the hindrances, is the development of the so-called jhana factors, the factors of collectedness or absorption. It's those factors and qualities of mind and heart which make up collectedness and calm abiding. And I think for the moment there's just enough time to briefly mention them and see what they are, especially the first two ones are quite helpful in a very practical way for us. The five, the first is vitaka or aspiration or in a meditative sense, it's approaching the object, it's making contact. The second, vichara, could be called Appreciation, maybe, staying with the object, holding contact. The third is pity, maybe interest, even fascination, joy, rapture. The fourth is sukha, happiness. And the fifth is ekagata, or one-pointedness. 
The first Vitaka and Vichara for us here in, in very practical terms are most important. Perhaps we could say they define the direction of our effort or in a way how we make effort. Vitaka is the movement of the mind or of the mindfulness towards the object, the breath, a sensation, a sound, an emotion. It's that establishing contact. We need to do that. We make the effort to feel the breath. It doesn't take much, but just as much as it takes to feel. Like if right now all of you feel the, your right hand where it is right now. You feel it? It's like the mind goes there and then feels what's there. It's not very difficult, but it takes that much to establish that contact with the experience. Be it the breath or the hand or a feeling or an emotion or a sound. It's compared to an arrow that flies towards the target or compared to a bee that flies to a flower. The second vichara is the quality of the mind, of the mindfulness, which stays with the object. It holds the contact we establish. It depreciates, or we could even say it wraps the object. It hangs out with it. Like the bee once arrived at the flower, appreciates, enjoys it, whatever bees do with flowers. I don't know, but they seem to hold contact, be in there, be busy with, with it. So these two factors we really practice with the breath, with the sensations that come in walking, with the sounds, with every moment's experience, making contact and staying, holding that contact. To really do this, to practice this, genuine interest is necessary, a kind of being motivated is necessary. But on the other hand, when we practice in this way of strengthening the first two factors, making contact and holding contact, then interest, even fascination, and even sometimes rapture, which is that third factor, will grow by itself. And I think there's another part that can be very helpful. Sometimes this is so boring. We've done a million steps already in our life, and you know, there's, it looks like in nine days we have to do, I don't know, 18,315 more, you know, up and down. Or we have seen so many breaths, you know, we want the break. And we think, where is the interest? Where, why is it so boring? And it really is because we're not wholehearted in our being with what is going on. We're not totally being with the breath or the step or the sound. We're sort of half-hearted on the surface, mechanical. We think, yeah, in-breath, out-breath. Oh, God, it's only 10 minutes. Wonder. Nice place here, in-breath, out-breath, and it's so boring. 
interest is a quality that comes because we make contact and we hold contact and we put all of ourselves into something. It doesn't matter what. The breath, walking, sounds, feelings, a relationship, an activity. Being total with it, interest comes. And if it's very strong, it becomes rapture. And that's really that third quality. When that grows, a very subtle, or perhaps even an obvious, strong happiness in the mind and sometimes in the body can appear. And that's the fourth factor. And our one-pointedness increases, or a steadiness of mind increases, and that's the fifth factor. That's, in very short, how this five jhana factors work. Now, when our collectedness, our commitment, and our interest deepen in this way, something very interesting begins to happen. The hindrances begin to disappear. And that is interesting, isn't it? Temporarily, that is, for the duration of this state of meditation, they get, maybe we could say, suppressed or put away. And we're able to see things much more deeply, much more clearly. And in that situation, insight and wisdom become possible. And that's at least one very good reason why we come to retreats, why we do retreats. Even though it's likely that hindrances will be back as soon as our collectedness and depth of meditation weakens, sometimes we have to return them, you know, near West Dogwell when we drive out of the place at the end of our retreat, somebody collects some of the depths of concentration. And we realize, oh, there's still some of this stuff around. Yet, we have seen, we have learned, and we have understood what we might perhaps never have seen in daily life. We have seen in, at the level, at the depth, that possibly wouldn't be happening in our usually busy daily life. And I think that's one of the important things retreats are all about. And it's not really mostly about this often quite pleasant feeling of wholeness that we can develop, of calm, of happiness, which though can be very healing, but to which we also can get attached. Sometimes people leave the retreat and they say, I had it for four more days and then it left. And then trying to find out what it is very often it is that sense, which is very pleasant, that comes through a strong collectedness. And that does, to some extent, fall away outside a formal situation. But yet it is very helpful, it is very powerful to create a situation where the hindrances are not operating so much, so we can see clearly, we can discover in a way we could never do otherwise. And that's very precious. That's very profound. Definitely, permanently, the hindrances cannot be uprooted by concentration, by absorption, no matter how deep it is. But only through insight or wisdom. 
through what is called the various stage, states of or stages of enlightenment. In this first doubt is eliminated, doubt about the nature of reality, about no self. Then on a much, much deeper level, all forms of desire and aversion are eliminated, uprooted. And at the very end, which is interesting, the most subtle forms of restlessness disappear. And all remnants of pride, of feeling separate from life, and final ignorance disappear. Yet whenever the hindrances are not operating, even temporarily, then heart and mind show their true face. Whenever attachment and desire are absent, there is deep contentment. We can easily let go, and our innate generosity shines through. When ill will, aversion is absent, there is gentle acceptance nor basic all-good nature radiates as kindness, as compassion, as sympathetic joy. When sloth and torpor have disappeared, the mind is clear, is radiant, is full of energy and awake. And when restlessness and worry fall away, our heart is still and rests in deep peace. And when doubt disappears, we really can settle into the here and now, into this, our reality, with great trust and feel at home. Clear, awake, loving and compassionate, and one with ourselves and with life. As Shinsho says, whatever road I take, I'm on my way home. like to sit quietly for a few minutes. 